Welcome to our C3 Grow podcast. Wherever you are today, we hope that this message encourages you. We'd love to see you in person at one of our three locations, Howick, Ormiston, and Suva. Visit c3grow.org for details. Today I'm uh, concluding our, our series, The New Life. After this, I'm going to be uh, hopping on a plane and heading to Jakarta. Uh, I'll be... Oh, hang on a second. You're a little bit too enthusiastic about me going away. Uh, but I'll be ministering there this week, so I'd appreciate your uh, prayers and thank you for your continued generosity and support in releasing us to serve and to help a church that has uh, helped the church beyond our own. Uh, I'm uh, concluding our series, The New Life, today. Uh, This is a really important series for us as a church. We're called C3 Grow, Ephesians 4.15. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is, into Christ. Uh, So we like that idea so much, we named our church after it. Uh, But then we might, and we should, uh, ask the question, What does this new life that we are called to grow up into actually look like? And what we've seen as we've moved through this series over the last several weeks is this new manner of life that we're called to live in Paul's vision uh, for our life is not a vague one. Over the last several weeks, we've walked through the section of Scripture, Ephesians 4.17 to Ephesians 5.21, in which Paul animates what this new life actually looks like. Just by way of review, uh, I wanted to quickly recover what we saw. We first saw that as believers, we are to put off our old self and we are to put on our new self. We are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and that's going to cause us to live lives that often contrast the norms of society Uh, We then saw that as Christians, we are called to live lives of truthfulness. We saw that while anger isn't always inappropriate for believers, but it must always be uh, controlled. We saw that Christians are not to steal. On the contrary, they are to work hard and seek to generously participate in the life of the community. We saw that God has a vision for our speech, that our mouths would be fountains of grace which build others up. We saw that Christians are called to kindness, and uh, God calls us to imitate him uh, by walking in love. We saw that Christians are to abstain from sexual immorality and also the crudeness of the age. We saw how Christians are called to be partners with the light and not with the darkness. We saw how Christians are called to live with wisdom and discernment, and God's Spirit supplies these to us generously. And we saw how Christians are not to be given to drunkenness. They are instead to be filled with the Spirit. So uh, we've covered quite a lot of ground over the last several weeks to now arrive at today's text. Ephesians 5, verse 20 and 21 in particular, we're going to be looking at verse 21. So uh, come with me to Ephesians 5. And uh, let's read together. Actually, we'll read from verse 17, just for the sake of context, paying particular attention to verse 20 and 21. I was like a madman uh, in the last service. I got really excited about this word. So we'll see uh, how we go today. Paul writes, Therefore, 
Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In the year 1520, some of you remember it well, uh, Martin Luther wrote on the topic of Christian freedom. He did so under the threat of a charge of heresy, and he had been ordered to stop preaching. Uh, The Protestant Reformation was really beginning to pick up steam, and uh, he wrote an article. The article was titled, On the Freedom of the Christian. It was an appeal to the Pope and also to Roman Catholics everywhere that the theology that he was presenting was not at all inconsistent with the teaching of the Scriptures. Now, his writing begins with two seemingly contradictory propositions. A Christian is an utterly free man, Lord of all, subject to none. And a Christian is an utterly dutiful man, servant of all, subject to all. Lord of all, servant of all, subject to none, subject to all. This is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith, that the freest people in the world are in fact the most subject. We live this new life that we are called to live, that we are called to grow up into. We live as free men and free women. But as free men and free women, we now freely submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now that word, submit or submitting or submission, it's not a popular word. Not when you're the one called to do the submitting, at least. And we all are at some point. And probably the reason why the word is so unpopular is because those who have been called to receive submission in every context have often used the dynamic in abusive ways, which is, of course, biblically prohibited. But in any event, this is a word that can get people very upset. However, in spite of any outrage it may cause, and in spite of any sensitivities that it may offend, the Bible uses it straightforwardly, unapologetically, and frequently in the New Testament, commanding it from God's people. So then, what is it to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? What is it? How do we do it? Why would we do it? That's what we're looking at today. A big theme in Paul's letter to the Ephesians has been the importance for believers to live in unity. Now, I said at our all-in team night a few weeks ago, we often have a pretty superficial understanding of what unity is in the church. What we think of it being is uh, getting along with each other, 
we may even go one step further and think about it as agreeing with each other. And both of those are good and important. We want to get along with each other as much as we possibly can. We want to agree with each other as much as we possibly can. And there are scriptures that support that idea to be sure. But there has to be more to Christian unity than that. As I said in our all-in team night, Christian unity is under the word, it is in the spirit, and it is with one another as co-members of the body of Christ. That is the basis for our getting along with each other, and that is the basis for our agreeing with each other. If it isn't, then any kind of unity that we have will be shallow and it'll be shaky. But if it is, then it contributes towards each part of the body working properly so that the body builds itself up in love. Christian unity is both a reality and a goal for the church. Our unity is called to be deeper and more profound than just getting along with each other and agreeing with each other. Therefore, it requires more from us than fake smiles and ignoring differences. You hear what I'm saying? If we are going to have a true and productive unity, it's important that we bear with each other. Now, Paul has already used this phrase in Ephesians, bearing with one another. It's a phrase that he's fond of, and it's a phrase that I'm fond of too. Just a little on, a little earlier on in Ephesians 4 verse 1, he says, uh, I therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So a large part of maintaining the unity of the Spirit is bearing with one another in love. Paul uses that phrase over in uh, Colossians. Colossians 3 verse 13, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. So he's clearly fond of that phrase. So am I. And one of the reasons why I'm so fond of that phrase is that it is realistic. It's realistic. What he's saying here with this phrase is this. If you're going to live in unity, you're going to have to learn to put up with one another. You're going to have to make allowances for one another. You're not going to agree with each other all of the time. You're not going to get along with each other all of the time. Your gift is going to rub up against your gift sometimes, and you're going to have to deal with that. Your unity is going to need to be built on something strong. When our unity is under the Word, it is in the Spirit, and it is with one another, recognizing that the same blood that washed your sin away washed my sin away. So whatever, we, whatever differences we may have, we share the most wonderful thing in common. 
When that is the foundation, we have a very strong foundation indeed. But when the rubber hits the road, you're going to be called on to bear with one another in love. Listen, I want to make you a promise. If you're new to this church, if you're figuring out what we're all about, I want to make you this promise. We're not perfect. And, and you, you give it time. Someone around here is going to annoy you. Someone around here is going to offend you. There's a really good chance it's going to be me, okay? I just, it just, I, I want you to know that this is not a perfect church. If it was a perfect church, it stopped being a perfect church when you walked in. But before you came in, it wasn't a perfect church because we were here, okay? I've been, um, I've been planning a, a, um, a summer break lately, like what I'm going to do in January, and as soon as you kind of Google accommodation, or even it seems as soon as you think accommodation in your head, you start getting these targeted uh, ad- advertisements from companies like Bookabatch. Now, Bookabatch are marketing themselves to me with this selling point of exclusivity in their accommodation. You book one of their batches and you have it for your group exclusively. And their line is a fascinating line. They say, why would you share your holiday home with someone you wouldn't share your holiday with? Why would you share your holiday home with someone you wouldn't share your holiday with? Now, I want to tell you, uh, the church is not made up entirely of people that you would like to share your holiday home with. It's not. I doubt that many of you would like for me to be in your batch this summer. And if you would, it's because you don't know me yet. Okay? I don't blame you. There will be some in this church that you would love to share your holiday with, but not everybody. And nor should that be the case. If that was a case, I would say it's a red flag that perhaps would become a little too insular. But the call of Christ is to share your lives in a special, meaningful way with a group of people who mostly you wouldn't share your holiday with. It's a special place. It's a special place. And this new life, that we're called to grow up into, make no mistake, it's a corporate life. It's a corporate life. It's life in a community. It's life as a part of a body. Very deliberately, we are given commands in the New Testament that we can't obey alone. We have to obey them in a context of a community. We are called to exhibit these new life characteristics personally and publicly, but we are also and especially called to exhibit these new life characteristics together and towards one another. Now, I would say that a big part of the how, how we are to approach this corporate life, if we are to have this more profound and productive unity, if we are going to bear with one another, if we are going to share our lives in meaningful ways with people that we wouldn't share our holidays with, two key components for our approach are found right here in our text today. Verse 20 and 21. Approach the sharing of your life with one another with, verse 20, thankfulness. And verse 21, 
mutual submission. Thankfulness and mutual submission. Now, we won't say a lot about it, but there is a lot to be said for thankfulness. And like bearing with one another, it is something that the Apostle Paul is fond of calling for. Here in Ephesians 5, he says that a part of or a result of being filled with the Spirit, we're going to talk about that later, is that we give thanks always and for everything uh, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we, we probably don't give thanks enough, and we would probably be better off if we did. Back over in Colossians 3, in the section that we looked at just before, Paul is giving this epic exhortation as to how we are to live uh, as a part of the community. So come with me over to Colossians 3. We're going to read uh, from verse 12. And uh, there's, he says a lot, but I want you to notice in particular uh, the exhortation for thankfulness. Colossians 3 verse 12, Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And now here in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Be thankful. Don't forget to be thankful. And then it's as if he wants to put an exclamation point to emphasize the importance of being thankful. He brings up thankfulness two times in two verses. Two more times in two verses. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Be thankful. He says it three times. Be three times more thankful than you think you need to be. Say thank you three times more than you think you need to. Paul says to the Philippians, he says in Philippians 1 verse 3, I thank my God in remembrance of you. Pretty much a standard opening for Paul. He opens all of his letters to churches in this way, expressing genuine thanksgiving to God for the people, the faith, and the works of the recipient church. Even the rotten Corinthians. I mean, they, you know, there was plenty to not be thankful for when you think about the Corinthians. But in Paul's first letter, he writes in verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. It's like he's finding something to be thankful about when he thinks about the Corinthians. So it seems to me that being thankful for one another and actually expressing this gratitude for one another to one another and to God is an important tool in the fight for genuine Christian unity. That verse, Philippians 1 verse 3, changed 
changed my prayer life. I thank my God and all my remembrance to you. Now, honestly, I pray for you often. And whenever you come to mind, I deliberately say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for them. Does the heart good? Does the heart good? Okay, now back to Ephesians 5.21. Here's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. Here's another tool, an attitude of mutual submission. Remember the questions we're asking. What is it? How do we do it? And why would we do it? And I'm going to answer all three of those questions in these next 10 minutes. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is a call to imitate Christ. Paul says in Philippians 2, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's unity. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In the example of Christ, we have a great definition for and a great example of submission. Mutual submission in the church is imitating Christ by looking to the interests of others and even being willing to lay down your preferences and your, your opinions and your interests for the sake of the needs and the well-being of others. That, in my mind, is what it looks like to submit to one another. Now, just like thankfulness, so too mutual submission is presented here as being a part of and a result of being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit. So we've answered what it is. Now here's how we do it. We primarily submit to one another in the same way that we do all of the things that God commands us to do that we don't want to do by being filled with the Spirit and by living in the power of the Spirit. Paul's expectation is clearly that God's Spirit will empower us to do God's will even when we don't want to do it. The Spirit provides us with the power that we need to do what God desires to be done. Now, being filled with the Spirit is not an optional extra for Christians looking for a little more edge and excitement in their faith. The fullness of the Spirit is fundamental to the reality of the Christian experience. When a person believes in Jesus, that is, when they put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, instantly and simultaneously, a number of things happen. They're justified by faith. They're adopted into God's family. And they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 4, they are given the Holy Spirit as a seal of their redemption. Now here in Ephesians 5, 
Paul says to those who have already been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. So whatever Paul means when he says that we should be filled with the Spirit, he clearly doesn't mean that it's supposed to be a one-off event. I was filled with the Spirit back in 1983. (laughs) Well, you need to be filled with the Spirit today because someone's going to cut you off in traffic and you're going to be tempted to flip them the bird and you're going to need the Holy Spirit to help you not to do that because then you're going to find out it was someone from here. It's not enough to be filled once in 1983. You need to be filled every day. Ephesians 5.19, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I think he's talking about an ongoing and repeated experience. If you want to stay drunk, you've got to keep drinking wine, right? It's a little tip. But if you want to stay filled with the Spirit, you need to keep drinking of the Spirit. That's not me being clever. That's Paul being clever. That's the way I see that. And as Dawn said last week, or sorry, Judy said last week, wasn't it? As uh, Judy said last week, we are filled with the Spirit again and again and again, or at least we should be, when we devote ourselves to the Word which He authored, when we give ourselves to the fellowship which He intended for us, when we come into His presence with singing and thanksgiving. All of these are ways that we can be filled with the Spirit. And in these things, we find real supernatural power to do the things that God commands us to do and to not do the things that God commands us not to do. We find new desires. Listen, the great need of the church is the fullness of God's Spirit. That's what it is. That's what we need to pray for all the time. We need to pray for it individually. We need to pray for it uh, for our church Because tradition and religion without the Spirit will kill the soul of the Christian and it'll kill the soul of the church. It does, it has, it will. Without the Spirit, the Christian life suffocates and likewise the life of the church suffocates as well. We need the fullness of the Spirit. And if we are to have power to look to the interests of others, to lay down our preferences and our interests, for the sake of the needs and the well-being of others, if we're going to find the power to submit to one another, we're going to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit or we're not going to do it at all. So we've talked about what it is. We've talked about how we do it. Now, why would we do it? Why would we do it? There are all kinds of motives for submission some pure, some less pure. But the motive that Paul provides us for our submission here is the purest of all possible motives. Paul says that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The idea here is that we are so captivated by the example of Jesus that out of reverence for him, we desire with the Spirit's help, to emulate what we've seen in Him. We read Philippians 2 verse 
uh, 1 through to 4 before. Now if we continue from verse 5, Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Do you see that? That's the example. We see the submission of Christ in the message of Easter. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We see the submission of Christ in the message of Christmas. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. That's the incarnation. Jesus demonstrated and modeled submission in his birth and in his death. He submitted to the will of the Father and he submitted for the sake of our needs and for the sake of our well-being. But look at this. Not just in his birth and not just in his death, but also in his life as well. I mean, the pinnacle moment in terms of an example to be left for the disciples. John 13. Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. Now what he does here is crucial. Again, how many more moments does he have left before he goes to the cross? Not many. He saved the most important example to right to the end. What does he do? He lays aside his outer garments. He takes a towel. He ties it around his waist. And then he pours water into a basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What's happening there? It's the submission of the Son to the Father. It's the submission of the greater serving the lesser. It's the submission of the master serving the servant. It's the submission of God serving man. It's a picture of what he would do in his death. And it's an example of what we are to do in life. And in here. So there we have it. And what a way to transition from this series now into the Christmas season. I'm going to be back here next week 
to kick that off. The real Christmas spirit is the characteristic embodied in the Son of God who, although he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. Come, let us adore him. It's that time of year. And as we adore him, as we admire him, as we revere him, more importantly, come, let us emulate him. Seek to be as he is in the world and in the church and with one another. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has blessed you. For more information about our church, you can find us online at c3grow.org.